Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. When people talk about plutocrats and the privileged 1%, they're talking about men like Jeff Rubin, who was formerly the chief economist at CIBC, one of Canada's biggest banks. But in 2009, he resigned from that life and began turning his mind to some of the big systemic problems he saw in the world economy like oil dependency, energy scarcity, and income inequality. His new Penguin Random House book is called The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. And for me, the book is kind of a time machine back to the days when progressives cared more about the real needs of the working class than they did about defunding the police or regulating pronouns. In fact, The Expendables, like its author, is actually quite difficult to peg politically because a lot of what Jeff Rubin argues echoes the complaints you hear from both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Globalization has hollowed out the middle of our economy, and the middle class, in statistical terms, hasn't had much of a real pay increase since the early decades of the Cold War. What's more, Rubin argues, the pandemic has shown us that the globalized goods pipeline tends to freeze up right when we need it most. Following the publication of his new book, I spoke to Jeff Rubin over Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. I first became familiar with you when you were writing about the effects of oil and oil scarcity, and you talked about how the world was going to get smaller. The world has gotten smaller, though not because of energy issues, but because of disease issues. I'm wondering what the version of Jeff Rubin maybe 10 years ago would have thought about developments that have happened in 2020? Well, I think you were referring to my first book, uh, Why Your World's About to Get a Whole Lot Smaller. That occurred with the advent of triple-digit oil prices. And what I was arguing at that time, that everything required burning oil to move goods or people around the world, that all of a sudden in a world of triple digit oil prices, something that was incidental to global commerce shipping costs would all of a sudden become very important and that all of a sudden distance would cost money and that would lead to a recalculation of where supply lines should be. What we're seeing, of course, today is uh, a different dynamic. In fact, the opposite has happened, the collapse in travel. World oil demand is down about 10 million barrels a day, which is like off the cliff decline. And of course, we've seen oil prices reflect that. Today, I think COVID-19 is a game changer and possibly an even greater and more enduring threat to globalization than the policies of arguably the most protectionist president in the post-war period. You know, that's not to say that there won't be a vaccine or a, you know, effective drug treatment for this disease within 12 months or whatever, but I think its impact will linger. There are 
after all, other zoonotic viruses waiting patiently to become the entree of someone's meal. And, you know, wet markets are still going to be a fact of life. So I think there's going to be a, a lasting impact. And I think that what we discovered during the whole N95 respirator, ventilator, mass crisis is that the theoretical benefits of globalization, the international division of labor, just-in-time inventory, you know, sourcing lowest-cost supply, uh, doesn't really mean that much when it absolutely has to mean something, and that it really didn't matter whether China had some unit labor cost comparative advantage in producing N95 masks or whatever, because when you really needed them, you couldn't get them. And even if you were like, for example, a Canadian company like Medicom or a U.S. company like 3M that had production in China, those plants were quickly commandeered. And, you know, someone in China was going to determine where those products went. So all of a sudden it brought a new urgency to local sourcing. And I think that that is going to be a game changer. Not to say that the goalposts haven't moved very, very dramatically on trade and tariffs. And that too is a defining challenge to global supply chains. But this is something that you could argue, and, and I don't know, but you could argue that perhaps there'll be a different administration in the White House, one less hostile to China, particularly in the issue of trade. But now the dynamic isn't just about the Trump administration. I think that COVID-19 has really been a lethal challenge to something that up until this point, was thought to be, you know, not only beneficial, but inevitable. And by that, I mean globalization. A lot of your book recites some of the negative effects of globalization, particularly the effects on working and middle class people. I couldn't quite figure out if you self-identify as a protectionist or not. Do you? Well, I mean, I'm talking about the expendables. I'm talking about people who have been left behind. You know, there hasn't been a real wage increase in the United States or Canada, or indeed most OECD countries for the last 50 years. So something's happening here. The key dynamic is that trade has vitiated the link between wage growth and employment. Because up until um, the pandemic, most economies, uh, US, UK, Canada, were operating at something functionally pretty close to full employment. And in the past, that would have driven wage gains, the classic Phillips curve theorem, which was a standard theorem in macroeconomics, where on one axis is the wage rate and the other the unemployment rate. So, you know, the question becomes, why didn't workers all of a sudden bargain, go on strike for greater incomes as labor markets were by all benchmarks of the last 30, 40 years at, at something pretty close to full employment. And that's because of the different types of jobs and the fact that it's hard to go on strike when there's no longer a union. So that's all as a result of globalization. That's all a result of being able to move production to the lowest common denominator, like in terms of wages, whether that's Mexico in auto trade or China in the balance of manufacturing trade. And that's the difference because in the past, you went back to the 70s, or the 60s. I mean, you could have always moved your plant to China or to Mexico. 
wages were even lower in those countries than they are today. The problem would have been you wouldn't have been able to export anything from those plants in China or Mexico to the United States or or the EU or Canada because of either absolute quotas or huge tariffs. So as the tariff wall came down brick by brick over successive rounds of GATT negotiations and later WTO negotiations and then bilateral and trilateral deals like NAFTA, that changed the dynamic. It changed the dynamic in a way that all of a sudden people became very vulnerable. Now, you know, if I'm a shareholder in GM or Canadian parts giant Magna, I would quite rightfully ask management, why are we paying $30 an hour for labor when we could be paying two to $4 an hour for labor? And that's, you know, a legitimate question for a shareholder in GM or Magnetas. But at the same time, if you're one of the few remaining North American GM or Magna workers, you know, you want that tariff because without that tariff, you're competing against a country that has one ninth to one tenth the per capita income and you're going to lose that competition. So instead of working, you know, in a steel plant or an auto plant, you're, you know, an Uber or Lyft driver juggling three types of jobs and wondering why your incomes are going backward, even though GDP seems to be doing really fine. The Uber example is quite timely. Uber has just announced it's ceasing operations in California. And I don't know if that will stick or if it's just a negotiating ploy because the legislature in California has tried to regulate the way Uber does business. Uber does not treat its drivers as employees. It treats them as independent contractors. Who do you think is going to win that battle? I don't know who's going to win that battle, but it's a perfect illustration of why there hasn't been a real wage increase in North America in 50 years. Because, of course, if you are classified as an independent contractor, uh, you're no longer subject to minimum wages because you're not. This isn't uh, you know, a wage contract. And so that's one of the ways in which companies like Uber or Lyft or indeed many companies in the so-called gig economy operate. And as their presence in the workforce grows over time with the increasing digitization of the economy, the outlook for wages become even less positive than it was, you know, the last couple of decades. Um, and, you know, I think that if you look at why all of a sudden the Brexit vote why all of a sudden Donald Trump, you know, I think that this is a long overdue backlash against that. And and that backlash, incidentally, uh, the populist backlash can hit from both sides of the plate. And one of the things often lost in the narrative told by either Republicans or Democrats is that when you get right down to it, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were reading from the same page. Uh, when it came to trade policy, if Bernie Sanders would have been allowed to win the last nomination and was in the White House, we'd have very similar trade policies. We'd have very similar tariffs. So the populist response today, as it has in the past, can be either from the left or from the right. Um, I guess what COVID-19 has done, it's moved the anti-globalization pro-protection agenda from the fringes, be it the populist left or the populist right, to more and more the mainstream. You have a casual reference here in one of the middle chapters about how you were employed for a few decades as the chief economist at an investment bank. 
do all your old plutocrat friends raise their eyebrows when you issue these warnings about the effects of globalization? Because the elites are quite well vested in the system of international trade. I mean, I haven't been at CIBC for a decade. That's a big Canadian bank. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. I was the chief economist of their investment bank called CIBC World Markets. Maybe a more up-to-date version of that was um, I was a senior fellow at CG. It's a global think tank, Center for International Governance Innovation. And in fact, this book comes out of a couple of papers originally I wrote there. I'm not at CG now. Uh, They're not really fans of what I'm saying, but I guess in fairness to them, if I was at the Brookings or any other global think tank, they have been the apostles of globalization. I'm not sure that they recognize it. I guess it's something the Marxist philosopher Gramsci would have called false consciousness, but I don't think these people recognize explicitly that they serve the interests of the elite. Tell us about the Phillips curve and why it matters, because I think your analysis in that regard is at the heart of this book. It absolutely is. And trade is at the heart of why the Phillips curve no longer functions. So in the old days, you know, as much as I guess in the 50s would have been the zenith of unionization, something like one out of every three American worker in the private sector belonged to some union. Today, it'd be like one out of 20. Not only did unions bargain for higher wages for their workers, but also for non-union workers who were in the same industry or region. You know, at one point, the Teamsters were 50% of truckers in the United States. So whatever the Teamster agreement was, it spilled over onto what the other 50% of truckers earned. So it had a what we would call in economics a demonstration effect. As unionization whittled down and there was less and less, then there's obviously you lose that dynamic. It's accept a job or or don't work here. The few remaining places that are unionized, the behavior of unions have changed and it's no longer the priority about getting a real wage increase. It's about ensuring that there's going to be pensions, ensuring that there's going to be a plant. So strikes have become a very rare thing because what typically happens when a union goes on strike in a plant in North America or Western Europe What typically happens is that in the middle of the night, some repo trucks come in, cart away whatever machinery they can to the new plant that's going to open in Mexico. And the plant where you used to work gets sold off and becomes a high rise condo. So that's why you don't have the Phillips curve working anymore. And it really wouldn't matter how low the unemployment rate is. That's not going to change. What allows that to happen is the fact that, you know, when when the plant moves to Mexico or China or wherever, it can produce the same things and sell back into the same market because of free trade. And, you know, if it was back in the world where there used to be a 15 to 20 percent tariff, that wouldn't happen. And then the Phillips curve would start to work. And then workers would get real wage increases, at least when the economy was strong. You know, workers never got wage increases during recessions. But during periods of economic strength, there was a clear functional link between the unemployment rate and wages that has totally been broken. And it's been broken because of trade policies. And now a brief commercial message. Since you're a Quillette podcast subscriber, 
I'm guessing you get automated software suggestions about other podcasts you might like. Well, here's a human suggestion from me. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which you can find through jordanharbinger.com or at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Jordan's podcast is famous. Apple named it one of its best podcasts in 2018. And one reason is that Jordan Harbinger himself is such an interesting guy. Like me, he was a lawyer before he got into media, but very much unlike me, he lived an amazing life as a world traveler, getting kidnapped in Mexico and then again in Serbia, and he also ran a tour company that took travelers to North Korea. A few recent episodes I've listened to feature Harbinger interviewing an astronaut, a former Islamist, and a guy who was investigated by the FBI because he was informed on by his mentally ill father. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. Just search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B, as in boy, I-N, as in Nancy, G-E-R. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. This week, as we're speaking, the stock market, at least in the United States, now has regained everything it lost at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. The S&P 500's at a new high. NASDAQ, of course, has more than done that a while ago. And I think 20 or 30 years ago, you would have middle-class Americans cheering this, but now it's just completely irrelevant. Because middle-class Americans don't own stock, okay? The concentration of stock, and not just in the United States, in the UK, in Canada, has never been more so in the hands of the very wealthiest. And of course, they've been the greatest beneficiaries of what had been the longest bull market around. And since billionaires and millionaires rely on capital gains, and capital gains, as you know, are taxed very differently than wage income, you know, they have been the beneficiaries. So most economists, certainly the other senior fellows at the think tank where I worked at, would argue that if we follow Jeff's prescriptions, GDP will be smaller. And I wouldn't take issue with that criticism. My rejoinder would be, on behalf of the expendables, why do I care about GDP? You know, GDP has been doing fine in the last 50 years. I haven't seen a real wage increase. What does that mean? Well, it means that all the gains from GDP growth have been accrued by a very narrow strata of the population, and they don't include me. So instead of worrying about growing the pie, let the 1% to, you know, gorge themselves with the spoils of GDP growth worry about GDP. I just want to cut myself a larger slice of the pie. And if the pie shrinks as a result, that's not my problem. I'm a defender of capitalism, but I also recognize that capitalism only functions properly when you have a vibrant middle class, because people who are impoverished don't spend money, and people who are extremely rich spend only a, a very small portion of their money on consumer goods. And yet, I think the argument you're making, although I would interpret it as being a recipe, I think, for helping to save capitalism, a lot of people would regard it as anti-capitalist. Is that a frustration you have, that people listen to you maybe on a superficial level and think that you're advancing some kind of Marxist agenda? If the book has appeal, it has appeal to people on both sides. Bernie Sanders would like what I'm saying just as much as Donald Trump. The book goes to great lengths that this is not globalization's first rodeo, okay? The period from 
1850 to 1914, some people would argue, was the true age, golden age of globalization. And it ended, of course, in tears, also because many people were left behind, which raises the question, is globalization in and of itself cyclical? Does it have the seeds of its own destruction? Globalization was totally reversed after World War One, and we went back to autarkic trade policies, Smoot Hawley, uh, the rise of protectionism. There, but there was a reason for that, okay? And the reason was basically in response to people being left behind. So there's a sense of deja vu here too. And, you know, as I say, I don't think Brexit and Donald Trump was just a black swan event, some freak random occurrence. I think it was a response to a certain set of economic conditions that have grown around globalization and that seem to be intrinsic to globalization. And that is that at least in what used to be referred to as the advanced industrial economies or OECD economies, it means the marginalization and ultimately decimation of the middle class. You know, the middle class was not only the backbone of the economy, I think it was the backbone of the political and social consensus that up until this point have defined liberal democracies. That's now under question. And I think that's not just angry old men. I think that's just as much a failure of globalization to deliver to millennials who now do the Uber type of gig economy um, as it is to, you know, the unemployed auto worker. I think you're absolutely right that the Bernie Sanders left and the Donald Trump right have a lot in common when it comes to some of the economic forces you're describing. And yet they they often hate each other, largely for issues that have nothing to do with economics. You know, I've seen this on both sides because I've worked in the conservative and left-wing media. On the left side of the spectrum, you see a lot of traditional socialists who have just completely abandoned economic issues because they've become fixated on race and sex and gender. From an economics point of view, maybe they're not really huge issues. How much did they interfere with a coalition of, as you call them, the expendables getting together and bridging left and right? Well, okay, I think first we have to answer a more fundamental question. What really divides us? Is it race or is it class? And I would argue that the schisms in our society right now are even deeper when it comes to class. I agree, but that's become a heresy especially on the left. I'm not, you know, representing the left or the right. I'm just telling you what I see. It was one of my biggest frustrations when I worked at a left-wing magazine is I was like, can we please be more Marxist? Let's be Marxist and let's talk about immigration, for example, okay? What holds black incomes back? Is it racism? And I'm not denying that there isn't racism out there, but is it racism or is it migrants? What historically have held native labor back? It's been immigration. Andrew Carnegie referred to them as a stream of gold. Most from the German Employers Association to the Business Council on National Issues in Canada to the Koch brothers have always been huge advocates of increased immigration and open borders. Is it the desire to basically help people in impoverished countries with the promise of a better life here? Or are there perhaps 
less altruistic motivations, like obtaining a source of cheap labor. And, you know, historically what's happened is that waves of migrants going back to, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Gangs of New York, it dealt with the Irish migration to New York City during the potato famine in Ireland. I mean, they were not met with open arms, okay? That's where the nativists sort of come from. Okay, and they were not met with open arms for a very good reason. And that is because they displaced the native labor because they were willing to work for less than the native labor. And, you know, nobody is down at the lower end, last hired uh, during the last century than the black man in the United States. Okay, so, you know, when you get waves of migration, what typically happens is the participation rate of people like black people starts to decline. And it's been declining ever since the 1970s when immigration was once again opened up. So, you know, in the left, for example, they would portray the world as workers and immigrants are all in solidarity. But the economics of that works a little bit different. Okay, and that's an issue. And, you know, when it came to open borders, I mean, Bernie Sanders was not any more an advocate of open borders than Donald Trump. If anything, Donald Trump is tirades against the Sicarios who are coming across the border actually betrays the interests of his class because the dude's a billionaire and billionaires want to see a huge immigration levels because cheap labor. It gives them hordes of people to do their landscaping and put up their drywall. But these are words in today's environment that cannot be spoken, yet they need to be said. And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. And you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to BetterHelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. A lot of people would say, look, yes, there's this huge and growing income inequality out there, and the solution to it is a more progressive tax policy coupled with a universal and generous basic income or something like it. These things go by many acronyms. You cover this. Why has that proven to be a dead end? It's the same challenge as going on strike to get a wage increase, okay? Progressive tax policy, whether it's increasing taxation of dividends or capital gains, because that's how really rich people make their money, not through salary, or even through things like raising the minimum wage. 
the rejoinder against that is going to be that this is going to hurt the very people it's intended to help because it's going to drive away investment and it's going to drive away jobs to jurisdictions where dividends and capital gains are taxed preferentially or where there aren't minimum wage uh, requirements. But that's all about the ability to move production and capital all around the world. When capital's not so mobile, you know, it's a lot easier to manage and it's a lot easier to tax. But when capital is footloose, when manufacturing is footloose, it's a race to the bottom. Or if you're the Koch brothers, a race to the top. But anyway, what it means is basically that you access the cheapest labor and that governments, even well-intentioned governments, don't feel that they have the tools that they had in the 60s and 70s to for a more progressive tax policy. Because just as that plant can move when workers go on strike, so can all that investment when it looks at legislation or tax policy that it doesn't like. Jeff Rubin is a world-leading expert on trade and energy and former chief economist and chief strategist at CIBC World Markets in Canada. His new book is called The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. Jeff Rubin, thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. My pleasure. Take care. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.